Hello guys and welcome to Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. In this third episode of the biology section here, we'll be talking about the cell. Tons of you guys emailed me recently, um, you know, just got caught up with med school this semester, but I found a little pocket of time to make these episodes, so why not? At the time of recording this, it is currently peak MCAT season, so I know, you know, any bit of help counts. Just like with psychology and sociology, this podcast should not be your main source of content review. Take that from books, notes, whatever. This is more of a passive supplemental source of content for when you're in the car, daily commute, walking your dog, or whatever you're doing. Just running through the concepts in your head so that you get more accustomed to them and can get the score you're aiming for come test day. Also, another heads up, I'm human. I can make mistakes. If I do make a mistake, just let me know via email. But I do try my best to double and triple check my sources to make sure everything is correct for you guys. So in this episode, like I said, we'll be talking about the cell. We'll be going over topics such as organelles, different types of prokaryotic cells, the actin cytoskeleton, stuff like that. And uh, so let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. So we'll start off here with the cell theory. There's four pillars here. Three are a part of the original cell theory, and the fourth was added later, and you'll figure out why in a bit. So first, everything alive is made of cells. That ant you accidentally stepped on today, that plant in your room, yourself, everything alive is made of cells. The second pillar is that the cell is a basic functional unit of life. The third, cells can only come from pre-existing cells. We don't make cells out of thin air. They come from pre-existing cells. And finally, the fourth added later is that cells carry genetic information in the form of DNA and it's passed on from the parent to the daughter cells. So the most obvious difference in living organisms is eukaryotic versus prokaryotic cells. Eukaryotic cells have a nucleus in a membrane. Prokaryotic cells don't have a nucleus. E. coli, the bacteria in your gut, that's a prokaryotic cell. Eukaryotic cells are like your liver cells. So in every cell, there's a semi-fluid cytosol where organelles chill at inside the cell membrane. For eukaryotic cells, organelles are protected by a membrane that's usually a phospholipid bilayer. They have a hydrophilic surface and a hydrophobic inner wall. Hydrophilic means, of course, it likes water. Hydrophobic means it repels water. So inside the membrane, we got the cytosol. This lets molecules diffuse through the cell. The first big organelle I'll be talking about is the nucleus. The nucleus encodes genetic material into DNA, which is then organized into chromosomes. The nucleus has a nuclear membrane, which maintains the nuclear environment and kind of keeps it separate from all the other organelles in the cell. There are these things called nuclear pores, though, and they let two-way exchange of material to occur. DNA also have genes. Genes are genetic coding regions. So how does the DNA anatomy work? So we initially have a linear line of DNA wound around some proteins called histones, and the histones get wound even more into chromosomes. Also inside the nucleus, we have the nucleolus. The nucleolus is where ribosomal RNA is made. The nucleolus takes up about 25% of the nuclear volume, and when you look at it in a microscope, it's that one dark spot. Next up, the next organelle here is the mitochondria. And you know when I'm talking about the mitochondria, I gotta say the line. The mitochondria is a powerhouse of the cell. So the mitochondria has a two-layer membrane. The outer layer is a barrier between the cytosol and the inside of the environment. So okay, that's kind of like a normal organelle membrane, right? The inner layer of the membrane has a ton of these folds we call crista. This membrane has molecules and enzymes that are used for the electron transport chain. These are huge in making sure you get the energy you're using right now. 
So the space inside the inner membrane is called the matrix, but the space between the inner and the outer layer is called the intermembrane space. That's, you know, pretty self-explanatory. Mitochondria are what we call semi-autonomous. They contain their own genes and replicate independently of the nucleus through binary fission. You've probably heard the theory about how it's assumed that a cell with a nucleus engulfed a mitochondria and instead of digesting it, the cell used the mitochondria as an energy source and they had a symbiotic relationship that lives up to this day. That would explain why mitochondria replicate independently. So that's mitochondria. The next part of the cell are lysosomes. These are membrane-bound organelles that have these enzymes that they use to break down substrates. They function with another thing in the cell, these small things called endosomes. So endosomes are kind of like the organizer. They sort material before it ends up in the lysosomes. So clearly the lysosomes have these super strong enzymes that break down substrates really well. They have to encase these enzymes really well to make sure it doesn't leak into the cell. But in cases where the enzyme is released in the cell, we call that autolysis. It's cell death. Then we have peroxisomes. They're kind of similar to lysosomes. They have hydrogen peroxide and they're meant to break down those long chain fatty acids through oxidation, but they also synthesize phospholipids. So peroxisomes are, you know, you can kind of think of them as related to fats. They break down long chain fatty acids and they also synthesize phospholipids. And the last two organelles I'll talk about are the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus. The endoplasmic reticulum is this series of interconnected membranes. It's folded into this complex structure, but there is this central lumen in the middle. So the rough endoplasmic reticulum, the rough ER, is basically plastered with ribosomes, and those ribosomes allow for the translation of proteins. So we know, you know transcription, translation, rough ER is where translation of proteins occurs. There's also the smooth ER, that's more for lipid synthesis and detoxification of certain drugs and poisons. So the smooth ER transports proteins from the rough ER to the Golgi apparatus. It's also, you can, you can kind of consider the smooth ER as like the highway between the rough ER and the Golgi apparatus. Okay, so the Golgi apparatus, this is stacked membrane-bound sacs, and it's kind of like a packaging center. So think UPS. So the material goes from the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus, who ships it out into vesicles. So cellular products are sometimes modified in the Golgi apparatus. Sometimes it's like signal sequences that basically directs the delivery to a specific location, or sometimes it's adding things like carbohydrates or phosphates, etc. So once the Golgi apparatus makes those modifications, they're, like I said, sent out into vesicles. So if it's for some place in the cell, no big deal. But if we need to secrete these materials out of the cell, we do something called exocytosis by merging the vesicle with the membrane. Okay, so those were the organelles. I feel like everyone's kind of talked about those, you know, through high school, through college, all that stuff. Um, so that's just a rough, you know, broad overview. Now, moving on from organelles, let's talk about the cytoskeleton. The cytoskeleton provides the structure for the cell and it helps maintain that cell shape. The cytoskeleton is also really good for transporting materials around the cell. And we have three big categories for the cytoskeleton. We have the microfilaments, the microtubules, and the intermediate filaments. All right, so let's start off with the microfilaments. They're made of solid rods of actin. So think of microfilaments like steel rods. They're able to provide protection for the cell. I mean, obviously, I, I, like I said, they're steel. And um, they're also really important in cytokinesis. And there's this thing called the cleavage furrow. So it's made of microfilaments organized in a ring at the site of division. 
So when a cell is starting to split off, microfilaments do that splitting off. When actin filaments, aka the steel rods, contract, the ring gets smaller and pinches off. Then we have microtubules. They're the second category of the cytoskeleton. They're hollow polymers of tubulin proteins. So think of a tube like a straw, you know, they're hollow inside. So that's a microtubule. So these microtubule straws are all throughout the cell and they make pathways for motor proteins like kinesis and dynein to carry vesicles. So kinesis and dynein are basically homies of the microtubules and they help facilitate a lot of the movement. Kinesins moving along microtubules usually carry cargo such as organelles and vesicles from the center of a cell to its periphery. Dynines are important in sliding microtubules relative to one another during the beating of cilia and flagella on the surfaces of some eukaryotic cells. That's really, you know, in-depth, but, you know, basically just know kinesins and dynines are microtubules. Microtubules are hollow. They make pathways for motor proteins. So talking about cilia and flagella of microtubules, this part you got to know. Cilia are used in the movement of materials along the cell. Flagella are used to move the cell itself. And both of them have that nine plus two structure. There are nine pairs on the outside and two microtubules in the center. So nine pairs of microtubules on the outside, two microtubules inside. You know, they might ask how many microtubules are in a flagella or cilia and that would be the nine plus two structure. So nine pairs on the outside, two on the inside, 20 total. Finally, the last thing you got to know about microtubules are centrioles. So whereas cilia and flagella had that structure of nine pairs in a circle and two pairs in the middle, the centrioles have a structure of nine triplets of microtubules and a hollow center. So centrioles would have what? Nine times three, 27 microtubules versus 20 for cilia and flagella of eukaryotic cells. And with centrioles, if you listen to the episode about embryogenesis and replication and all that stuff, centrioles are used in mitosis. They organize the mitotic spindle and use kinetochores to attach to chromosomes and pull the chromosome apart. So microtubules, basically hollow straw-like structures, they're used to build cilia and flagella as well as centrioles. All right, and the last cytoskeleton structure you got to know is intermediate filaments. These are filamentous proteins like keratin, which is in your hair, your skin, your nails, all that. So these intermediate filaments are involved in cell-to-cell adhesion and can maintain the overall integrity of the cytoskeleton. They make the cell structure rigid and anchors well. All right, so the three categories of the cytoskeleton, we have the microfilaments. Think of microfilaments as being involved in movement in general. They allow cells to control their size and shape and move around by controlling their size and shape. They're super strong, solid rods of actin. So with microfilaments, think about the way amoebas move. Microtubules, they're involved in cell division and also function as the quote-unquote highways that motor proteins use to transport vesicles, organelles, all that stuff. And then intermediate filaments, they are structural and they provide anchor points. Think of them like the girders holding the cell together. All right, next up is tissue formation. And there's two types of tissues. There's epithelial tissue and connective tissue. So epithelial tissue covers the body and lines the cavities. Epithelial tissue is good for providing protection from pathogens. So the epithelial tissue in most organs constitutes the parenchyma. What is the parenchyma? That's the functional parts of the organ. So throw out all the connecting, all the supportive tissue, you get the parenchyma. Connective tissue supports the body and provides a framework for epithelial cells to carry out certain functions. 
they're the main contributors for these support structures. And that also has a weird name like parenchyma. The support structures are the stroma. So connective tissue, think bones, cartilage, tendons, they're all made of connective tissue. So in an organ, you have the functional parts, the parenchyma, and the connective parts, the stroma. Finally, we have the concept of the prokaryotic cell. Super simple, like I said before, the big differences between the prokaryotes and the eukaryotes is that prokaryotes have no membrane-bound organelles, and their DNA is a single circular molecule in the nucleoid region. There's three overarching domains of life in general. All right, we got archaea, bacteria, and eukarya. Archaea, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, archaea and bacteria are prokaryotic and scientists actually classify them together at first and they split them a little bit later. Archaea are single-celled organisms that look really similar to bacteria, but they have some similarities to eukaryotes as well. So they have genes and several metabolic pathways, just like eukaryotes. They start DNA translation with methionine, just like eukaryotes. They contain similar RNA polymerases to eukaryotes. And lastly, they associate DNA with histones, just like eukaryotes. The big difference between archaea and eukaryotes are that archaea have a single circular chromosome and they use binary fission to divide. Along with that, they are pretty similar in structure to bacteria, hence them you know, being mixed up before. Archaea also include extremophiles, which were initially classified as cells that are found in harsh environments of high temperature, high salt, and no light. But there are actually extremophiles in the human body as well. Okay, so let's move on to bacteria. Bacteria have a cell membrane and cytoplasm, and some have flagella. They're similar to eukaryotes as well, which makes it hard to find medicine that specifically targets bacteria, but there are some obvious things that are different about bacteria that medicine targets. Things like their ribosomal size or their difference in their flagella. So, okay, now that we have those two distinctions of prokaryotes, bacteria, and archaea, now with bacteria, there are three different shapes you have to know. There is cocci, bacilli, and sprilla. So cocci are spherical-shaped bacteria like common pathogens, bacilli are rod-shaped bacteria like E. coli, and sprilla are spiral-shaped bacteria like the syphilis bacteria, but we don't really have that many sprilla ones. Another distinction of bacteria is either being aerobic or anaerobic. Bacteria that need oxygen for survival, like they can't live without it, those are called obligate aerobes, so that's easy. Bacteria that can use fermentation and other forms of cellular metabolism without oxygen are called anaerobes. And there's three types of anaerobes you got to know. There are obligate anaerobes. So obligate means, you know, they can't do anything without it. So obligate anaerobes can't survive with oxygen, just like obligate aerobes can't survive without oxygen. Then there are facultative anaerobes. They can switch between oxygen metabolism or a metabolism without oxygen they can use both, um, you know, facultative or chillin'. They get the best of both worlds. And lastly, we have aerotolerant anaerobes. They are tolerant to oxygen, but they can't really use it. They just don't get really harmed by it. They're kind of chillin' as well. They don't really care. So we touched on the structure of prokaryotes before. Let's kind of expand on that. Prokaryotes are single-celled organisms. So that means they don't have a cell nucleus or membrane-bound organelles. And they have to perform all the life functions by themselves. They have a pretty rough life. One unique thing they have is a cell wall. Think of that like an outer barrier of the cell. They have the cell membrane too, just like eukaryotes, but they have a cell wall as well. And the cell wall and cell membrane combined is known as the envelope, and it's responsible for the prokaryote's protection. The cell wall really helps control the movement of solutes in and out of bacteria, 
And if you've taken microbiology at all, you've probably done a ton of experiments on bacteria by deciphering the cell wall because we split prokaryotes into two categories based on their cell wall, gram positive and gram negative. So this is pretty high yield, I'd say. Gram positive cell wall is if the envelope appears dark purple after we do a violet stain. And how does that happen? Gram positive cell walls have a thick layer of peptidoglycan, which is made up of sugars and amino acids. And that's like a structural barrier of sorts. Gram negative cell walls are much thinner than the gram positive prokaryotes, and they have a small amount of peptidoglycan, but they have an outer membrane. And this outer membrane is made of phospholipids and lipopolysaccharides, LPS. The lipopolysaccharides are the evil ones here. They're what trigger the immune response in humans. So even though gram positive cell walls have really thick layers of peptidoglycan, the gram negative cells are usually the evil ones. In gram negative cell walls, the space between the cell wall and the cell membrane is called the periplasmic space. Gram negative bacteria are surrounded by a thin peptidoglycan cell wall, which itself is surrounded by an outer membrane containing lipopolysaccharide. Gram positive bacteria lack that outer membrane, but they're surrounded by layers of peptidoglycan many times thicker than those found in the gram negatives. So as a rule of thumb, of course, with some exceptions, Gram-negative bacteria are more dangerous as disease organisms because their outer membrane is often hidden by a capsule or a slime layer, which hides the antigens of the cell. So gram-negative bacteria are kind of camouflage and they can enter the human body way easier. So the cell wall is a unique aspect of prokaryotes, but let's talk about their flagella. So these are single-celled organisms, right? Well, they got to move in some way and they love using that whip. They're not really a fan of the nene. I'm sorry, that was really lame. But okay, so the flagella, it's this long whip-like structure and they use it for propulsion. There's a term called chemotaxis. It basically means the ability to detect certain chemical stimuli and move towards or away from things. So that's what the flagella here is really used for. In terms of the actual anatomy of the flagella, you don't have to know much. Just know that, you know, maybe prokaryote flagella are more like a rotor and eukaryote flagella are more like a tail. So sometimes prokaryotes have plasmids. Plasmids carry DNA that is important for survival. It's DNA from external sources and not actually a part of the genome of the bacteria. Prokaryotes also lack mitochondria and they have different sized ribosomes compared to eukaryotes. Prokaryote ribosomes are sized 30S and 50S. Eukaryotes are sized 40S and 60S. And so eukaryotes got the big boys. I just kind of think I'm 100% eukaryote. So eukaryote, you know, 40S plus 60S, 100S, 100% eukaryote. And then prokaryotes are 30S, 50S. Now I'm going to conclude with the growth and genetics of prokaryotic cells before I move on to viruses. So prokaryotes, they use binary fission. That is the simplest form of asexual reproduction. They get their chromosome to throw itself to the cell wall and replicate while the cell itself gets bigger in size. Then the plasma membrane and the cell wall start to grow inwards and the DNA is given to each daughter cell. Quick and easy, it's faster than mitosis. But that results in two identical daughter cells and even prokaryotes need some genetic variation. Prokaryotes often use the material on plasmids to spice things up. Plasmids have these things called virulence factors, which increase how pathogenic the bacteria can become. Before, I said plasmids were separate from the genetic makeup of the prokaryote, but there's a subset of plasmids called episomes, and those are capable of integrating into the genome of the bacteria, and those change-ups let genetic diversity and evolution take place. 
Okay, so you got to know genetic recombination in prokaryotes. There's four different ways to do that. There is transformation, conjugation, transduction, and transposons. So transformation is the integration of foreign genetic material into the host genome. So let's say you're a bacteria and the 6-4 model looking homie to your left dies on you. You can go ahead and pick up some of his genetic material and boom, you're the bacteria equivalent of a 6-4 model. So transformation just grabs the genetic material and injects it into the host. Conjugation is the bacterial form of mating. So a little bit more romance involved here. There's the conjugation bridge that facilitates the transfer of genetic material between two cells. And there's the donor male and the recipient female. And the sex pili is like a bridge. It's made out of the male appendage. And then the donor bacteria can go ahead and give certain things like antibiotic resistance or virulence factors, all that. And transduction, that requires a vector. A vector is a virus that carries genetic material. So viruses are obligate intracellular pathogens. Remember earlier we talked about the word obligate. It means necessary. So they're obligate intracellular pathogens. They can't reproduce outside of a host. Viruses that infect bacteria are called bacteriophages. When they're infecting the bacteria next to you, they could accidentally take some of his DNA on their way out. And when they come to infect you, then boom, they integrate that transferred DNA into the genome. And we'll talk about viruses a lot more in just a bit. The last form of genetic recombination are transposons, and these are genetic elements that are capable of inserting themselves or removing themselves from the genome. But they're not only with prokaryotes. Scientists are actually studying transposons for ways to alter DNA inside living eukaryotes as well, so which is pretty, uh, pretty cool stuff. Okay, so real important part about bacteria before we jump to viruses is their growth. So when bacteria first adapt to new conditions, they have to go through a lag phase. They're basically just understanding the lay of the land, seeing how things are. Then as they start to get it, their population explodes exponentially in what we call the log phase. Binary fission and all that stuff happens and they're straight up pumping that population up. Then they hit that stationary phase. There's a plateau in the number of living bacterial cells and the rate of cell division and the death rate is basically equal. Finally, even Rome fell. Bacteria have to close it out with a death phase, an exponential decrease in the number of cells because they exceeded the environment's ability to support them. So it's kind of like a mountain, you know, it's chilling at the bottom, then the growth jumps up, then it stays steady at the top for a bit before it falls down. So those were prokaryotes, now viruses. Viruses are made of three things, genetic material, a protein coat, and sometimes an envelope that contains lipids. So first thing, their genetic information can be circular or linear, single or double-stranded, and can be made of DNA or RNA. So they have a ton of variation here. Second thing, the protein coat, that's known as the capsid. The envelope that surrounds the capsid is composed of phospholipids and proteins, but it's pretty sensitive to things like heat. So there's types of viruses you have to know as well. There are the obligate intracellular parasites that both express and replicate their genes in a host cell since they don't have the ribosomes to do protein synthesis. Then if a virus is found extracellular or outside of a cell, it's called a virion. Then we have bacteriophages. These don't enter bacteria, but instead they just inject their genetic material into the cell. As for viral genomes, they're either single-stranded RNA viruses that can be positive or negative sense. Okay, so that's that. Now let's go to viral genomes. 
So with viruses, there are a subtype that are single-stranded RNA viruses that can be either positive sense or negative sense. Positive sense means that the genome can be directly translated to functional proteins by the ribosomes. Negative sense, they need a little extra step. They need an RNA strand that's complementary, which is used as a template for protein synthesis. If it's negative sense, it needs its tool for the complement RNA strand, and that's RNA replicase. All right, so now we have something kind of cool, retroviruses. Those are enveloped single-stranded RNA viruses. They have two identical RNA molecules and an enzyme called reverse transcriptase that makes DNA from single-stranded RNA. So this DNA enters the host cell and sneaks through where it can be replicated and transcribed into, in the host, just like you know any normal DNA. So the cell is infected indefinitely until it's killed. HIV, that's a retrovirus. Now, there are two things that are kind of like cousins to viruses, and those are prions and viroids. Prions are infectious proteins and non-living like viruses. They cause diseases by misfolding proteins. So prions misfold proteins. When you misfold a protein, then you have the potential to reduce the solubility of the protein. So if it's not, you know, perfect shape, you mess with the solubility. If the solubility keeps getting messed up, the cell functionality gets thrown out the window. So prions are pretty messed up. They can really screw up a cell. Viroids are similar. They're sometimes called subviruses. They're small pathogens with really short single-stranded RNA, and they usually infect plants, and they can silence genes and prevent necessary protein synthesis. Big thing, though, just don't mess up viroids with virions. You know, they sound very similar, but viroids are small pathogens. Uh, virions are extracellular viruses. I can definitely see both of those being potential answer choices to a question. And even if the question is easy, someone can easily, you know, fumble at the goal line with uh, that little mix up there. So just be conscious of the difference. All right. So to conclude this episode, I'm going to talk about the viral life cycle. So viruses, they start with an infection. Viruses can only infect specific cells, though, cells that have specific receptors for the virus to bind to. So once the virus binds to the receptor, the virus and the cell are real close and intimate. Then the virus fuses with the plasma membrane of the cell. Sometimes the cell is dumb enough to think that the virus is good, and it brings it in by endocytosis. So viruses enter that way, but bacteriophages, like I said, they actually don't fuse in. They can just anchor, inject, and eject, you know, hit it and quit it, all that. So the virus has entered the cell, though, in either case in this point. They have entered the cell, and translation has to happen so the virus can reproduce. So most DNA viruses get taken to the nucleus where they're transcribed to mRNA. The mRNA goes and gets translated to proteins. But for positive sense RNA viruses, it skips that nucleus part. It just goes directly to the ribosome and it gets translated. Negative sense RNA viruses, they need that complementary RNA strand. So they use their handy dandy RNA replicase and then the complement gets translated to make proteins. And retroviruses, they use reverse transcriptase. They travel to the nucleus and they integrate into the host genome. So using ribosomes, tRNA, amino acids, and enzymes from the host cell, viruses translate proteins. Then once the viral genome is replicated and the capsid is made with a protein, they can both be packaged together and replicate everywhere. Now that the viruses made their lesion, how do they spread that lesion of viruses? So when a cell gets invaded with viruses, they might just kill themselves. In that case, it doesn't really help the body all that much because the viral lesion just gets spilled everywhere to attack more cells. 
There's also extrusion. Viruses can leave the cell by fusing with the plasma membrane. So they get into the cell, they do their thing, and they leave. That's called a productive cycle. Nobody is harmed, virus did their thing, and they left. Now, depending on where the virus is in the growth cycle, they can either be lytic or lysogenic. The lytic cycle is when they max out the use of the cell. The cell becomes swollen with new viruses and just boom, the viruses go out into the free world and can infect other cells. Cells in the lytic cycle are known as virulent. They don't care about anything except maxing everything out and spreading. The lysogenic cycle is when, if the bacteria isn't lysed, the virus can enter the host genome as a provirus or a prophage. They can be integrated indefinitely, but there's some point where they say screw it and go into the lytic cycle. So the lysogenic cycle, the virus is basically hiding in the shadows. So that's that. Those are where viruses, genes, cells, all of that stuff. Rough overview, nothing crazy. And as usual, let me go over what I found were the most important parts and we'll call it a day. Same old spiel. If you're not annoyed with my voice yet, make sure to follow or just binge the content. If you dig this podcast and what it's all about, I'd love if you threw a review out there too. Okay, so this episode was a fun one about the cell. We started with the four pillars of the cell theory. You have to know these, and it's definitely realistic for them to provide an example and ask which pillar of the cell theory that example supports. So don't only memorize them, but be able to apply them. So the first pillar is everything alive is made of cells. You, your pet, your plants, they're all made of cells. Second pillar is that the cell is the basic structural and functional unit of life. It's the common denominator. The third pillar is that cells come from pre-existing cells. A plant growing a leaf, that would be an example that supports the third pillar of the cell theory. And the fourth pillar added later was that cells carry genetic information as DNA. We talked about eukaryotes versus prokaryotes. Eukaryotes have a nucleus, prokaryotes don't. We went into organelles and talked about a few different membranes. There's the phospholipid bilayer that supports the whole cell, the nuclear membrane that maintains the nuclear environment, and the mitochondrial two-layer membrane. In the nucleus, there's the nucleolus, which is where the ribosomal RNA is made, and it's that dark spot on a microscope. That's because it's super, super compact. The mitochondria's two-layer membrane is pretty cool. The outer layer is that protection between the cytosol and the mitochondria, just like a normal membrane. But the inner layer is the bougie, fancy one. It has all the folds called crista and molecules and enzymes that they use for the electron transport chain. And remember, the electron transport chain is what is pumping all that ATP that the body is using. The space all the way in the inside of the mitochondria is the matrix, but the space between the inner bougie membrane and the outer layer is the intermembrane space. We also talked about the dynamic duo of endosomes and lysosomes. Endosomes are a triple threat. They can either send the material to the Golgi, to the membrane, or to lysosomes. Sending stuff to the lysosomes is basically saying, peace out, that material is dead because the lysosome has some super strong enzymes that just destroys them. Lysosomes are the cleanup crew. Think of them as quote unquote lysol. So lysosomes, lysol. We have peroxisomes as well. They're kind of like lysosomes in that they have a super potent chemical in them, which is hydrogen peroxide, which cleans things up well. But when we talk about them, we really want to know about how they break down very long chain fatty acids through oxidation, and how they make phospholipids. Just a heads up, fatty acids are usually broken down in the mitochondria, but very long chain fatty acids are the peroxisome's job. Then we went over the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus. 
The endoplasmic reticulum has the rough ER for ribosomes for translating RNA to proteins and the smooth ER for making lipids and detoxifying certain things. The endoplasmic reticulum is also kind of a highway as the smooth ER transports proteins to the Golgi apparatus. The Golgi apparatus is the UPS store. They sometimes modify the packages, but they throw on the shipping labels and send them out in vesicles. So organelles is wrapped up. Let's go to the cytoskeleton. The cytoskeleton is just for eukaryotes. They have three big parts, microfilaments, microtubules, and intermediate filaments. So microfilaments, we said, are made of actin. Honestly, I would sometimes mix whether microfilaments or intermediate filaments had actin, but actin is a short word, and the filament that is in charge of it has to be microfilaments. Micro, short word, microfilaments. Intermediate filaments are made of keratin, vimentin, stuff like that. They're intermediate size words. So actin is a short word, so it's for microfilaments. And microfilaments' main objective is cytokinesis and, of course, you know, maintaining the size of the cell. But cytokinesis is kind of like the highlighted function of microfilaments. They're specifically in charge of the cleavage burrow. So to keep that quote-unquote small theme of microfilaments going, microfilaments make two microcells from one big cell by using actin. Microtubules are hollow tubes of tubulin, and the name is pretty self-explanatory there. Microtubules are kind of like the casing for wires, the wires in this analogy being uh, kinesins and dynein, two motor proteins. So the white outside part of an iPhone charging cord is the microtubule, but the inside wires are kinesin and dynein. So both eukaryotic cilia and flagella are made of microtubules for movement, and they use that 9 plus 2 structure nine pairs on the outside and two microtubules in the center. Not two microtubule pairs in the center, just two socially distant microtubules in the center. Centrioles, on the other hand, those have nine triplets of microtubules and a hollow center. So remember, centrioles are used for eukaryotic cell division. And when we talk about cell division, it's easy to confuse microfilaments and microtubules and how their structures correlate to their functions. Microfilaments cleave the cell during cytokinesis. Microtubules are focused on centrioles when we're talking about cell division, which, you know, centrioles, they make spindle fibers to attach to chromosomes, but both are used for cell division. Intermediate filaments is the last one. They're made of a bunch of stuff. They're really there for cell-to-cell adhesion, and they provide anchor points. Proteins like keratin are intermediate filaments. We went over epithelial tissue versus connective tissue. Epithelial tissue makes the parenchyma, aka the functional parts of the organ. Connective tissue makes the stroma, aka the supportive structures. So the inside of your small intestine absorbing all those nutrients is the epithelial tissue, but the tendon in your knee is connective tissue. We went over prokaryotes. Those are the archaea and bacteria in our life. The main difference with prokaryotes is their lack of membrane-bound organelles and the fact that their DNA is circular. A big similarity between archaea, which hang around in the geysers of Yellowstone and other hot places versus eukaryotes, aka us, is that both us and those Yellowstone dudes start our DNA translation with unmodified methionine, and we both have RNA polymerases. Another big thing about prokaryotes is their cell wall, and really with this, all you got to know is gram staining. Gram positive appears purple, so positive equals purple, and the purple is from crystal violet. That's easy to remember. Gram negative appears pink, and that pink color is from safranin. The main difference between the two, gram positive and gram negative, is that gram positive has a thick outer wall made of peptidoglycan. 
gram negatives have that peptidoglycan wall too, but it's way thinner. So to compensate for that thin wall, gram negatives have an outer layer of lipopolysaccharides, aka LPS. LPS is evil and our body hates it. So gram negatives are usually the evil ones and our body usually has more adverse reactions to gram negatives. And the last thing about prokaryotes we went over is their reproduction. We said they use binary fission, where basically the cell gets bigger and the chromosomes replicate, and then it splits into two identical daughter cells. Quick, easy, faster than mitosis. So when prokaryotes want genetic variety, they got to do other things. They often use plasmids to spice things up. Plasmids are basically their backpack of extra DNA for specific scenarios. And plasmids often have virulence factors which get added, which we as humans are not a big fan of. Okay, four ways of genetic recombination. Let's talk about them. Transformation, that's picking up your dead friend's DNA and taking it as yours. Conjugation, that's the most romantic option here. There's a bridge between two prokaryotes and the genetic material gets added from one to another. Then the third one is transduction. Transduction needs a messenger. Just like we transduce energy in a phone charging cord and bring it from the wall to your phone, transduction requires a vector, aka a virus in this scenario, that carries genetic information from one bacteria to another. Transduction needs a traveler. And then the fourth are transposons. They're the last one here. And they are in both eukaryotes and prokaryotes. And that could be a test question too, to be honest. Like they could ask which form of prokaryotic genetic recombination you know, is also present in eukaryotes and transposons are. They're genetic elements that can be inserted or removed from the genome and prokaryotes love using transposons to make antibiotic resistance. Now, viruses are simple. Three ingredient recipe here, genetic material, protein coat, and an optional lipid envelope. With uh, prokaryotes, we said they generally have a single circular chromosome, but viruses, nah, they can be circular, linear, single-stranded, double-stranded, RNA, DNA, tons of genetic variety there. One line of thinking with viruses you have to know is positive versus negative sense single-stranded RNA. So positive sense RNA is RNA that is similar to our mRNA. So our body goes, oh, that's crazy. Let's start pumping its proteins out. Negative sense RNA have a negative, which is that they have one extra step. They bring their own RNA polymerase and have to make a complementary strand. So positive sense RNA are kind of like a ready-made sandwich, and negative sense RNA is when you get all the ingredients for the sandwich, but the virus has to make the sandwich when it gets into the cell. Then we talked about retroviruses. Uh, they're enveloped, single-stranded RNA viruses that make DNA from their RNA. Okay, and then we talked about the viral life cycle. Viruses start with infection. It binds to the receptor and enters the cell. Bacteriophages don't enter the cell. They usually just inject and eject. So the virus enters the cell and translation happens so the virus can multiply. DNA viruses go straight to the nucleus and make themselves some more mRNA. RNA viruses were positive or negative sense, and they usually go and make proteins by acting like mRNA. And then reverse transcriptases, they travel to the nucleus and integrate with the host genome, which sounds a lot more permanent, doesn't it? Now, after replication, they have to spread and the virus can either blow up the cell, the cell either realizes it's been finessed and blows itself up, or the cell has no clue and the virus can slip out in the dead of the night. If the virus can sneak out, we call that a productive cycle since the host cell didn't die. Now, with the growth cycle, the virus can either be in the lytic or lysogenic cycle. The lytic cycle just speed runs the host cell's machinery and starts spreading. 
cells that do that are virulent. So when we think of a viral illness, we usually think of that lytic cycle. Another option is the lysogenic cycle where viruses integrate into the cell and can hide in the shadows as a prophage. A great example of the lytic and lysogenic process is with herpes simplex 1. It's always with you if you have it, but it's usually hiding in the lysogenic cycle. Sometimes it bursts out into the lytic cycle and that causes cold sores. So that is all for this episode. That concludes it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And with that, we will be moving on to the digestive system next. I appreciate the support. See you guys all on the next episodes. Peace out.